I'd show and foul Romeo the wolf and Justin Parrish's beard. I tried to leave, but this all brought me back. And at least for now, I'm still here. You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you're about to hear were told December 12th at Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Square Peg in a Round Hole. Live music by Andy Miller. I'd like to see Bill Walker grow a beard like Justin Parrish's beard. I'd like to see Dan Sullivan grow a beard like Justin Parrish's beard. The waves at Eagle Beach mark Wheeler's ice cream. And about two weeks each year, I tried to leave, but this all brought me back just like Justin Parrish's like Justin Parrish's beard. Introducing storyteller number one. His name is Bob Coghill. He's a third-generation Alaskan. He's been in Juneau for eight years, but grew up in Nanana, which is a village near Fairbanks. Bob will talk about his life as a white person in Athabascan communities. This is his experience and not meant to represent your experience or those of people you know. Please help me welcome Bob. Well, this is the place where I go to church. And sometimes when I lose track during the sermon, I just contemplate this picture and try to figure out what's going on. So (laughs) I invite you to do that. I, I want you to imagine a interior Alaska, or as I refer to it, real Alaska, um, in the winter, everything is white. And the sun comes up late, and you, you step out, it's 30 below, and there's a raven, and the raven makes a sound, makes a croak. And you look at that eye, and that eye is so deep, it's bottomless. And you say, hello, grandfather because that's what my dad told me. That's what you say when you see that raven out there. And I don't know who the grandfather, I don't know whether it's, is it my grandfather? Is it Chief Thomas or Chief Henry? I don't know who it is, but you say, hello, grandfather. So I'm from Ninana, Alaska, which is on the lower Tanana, that's a language group, um, in the Doyon region. and. My name is, is Robert Alexander Coghill, Jr. My dad's name was Robert Alexander Coghill, Sr., and he was from that same town. And my, my mother was, um, was Gladys Schreiner, and she was from Philadelphia. Ninana is a place. Philadelphia, you know, maybe Germantown, Philadelphia is a place, but Ninana is, has, its, has its placeness, has weight. Um, as I was growing up, 
My fir the first photographs of me are with Mitch Dementev, who was born the same month I was. And the two of us are in cribs together, we're on playpens together, and we grew up together, um, not as people who did things together, we did things in competition. And that competition went through till about high school when Mitch discovered basketball and I discovered I was terrible at basketball. And he went on to, to be a big part of his life was basketball. But he also became president of the, of the Tanana Chiefs Conference and, and had a lot to do with, with Alaska Native subsistence. And meanwhile, I went on to run Alaska Village Corporations. And um, he's dead now, which I'm, I'm sorry about. But another person I grew up with was Susie Speck. Susie Speck was the first girl I kissed. We were, we were six years old <laughs> on Main Street. And um, we, I think we continued to kiss for the next decade or so. But, you know, now and again. My, my grandmother said to me, as she was, it was towards the end of her life, you know, and those grandmothers, they, they, they don't have barriers anymore. Um, and she said, I thought you'd marry one of those native girls. And I was humoring her the way you do with, with senior citizens. I'm getting to be there myself. But um, I was humoring her and I said, well, who did you think I would marry? She went, she, Came right back, Anita Marks. Well, that was a pretty good choice. Um, and I grew up there, and there was Frankie Manano. His dad was the was probably the best trapper in the in the area. And Frankie taught me how to uh, how to skin and and the ermine that I caught in my little trap line behind my dad's warehouse. And I used that, those same things to skin rabbits, and I would post them on a board and then wear them inside my mucklucks. Um, keep warm, it, because 30 below and all. So this is, this is the town that I grew up in. And this is, these are the people that I grew up with. And as I got older, um, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act started to come about, the need to ha claim the land of, of the people. And I remember sitting underneath the tables in the George Hall while people were making plans. And they weren't just talking, they were making plans. And I got to meet most of the, the leaders of the land claims movement at that time. And that was kind of radicalized me. And time went on and and the village had a corporation. The claims had been gone through Congress and there was this, this corporation and one day we were sitting out in the, in the dust and, and, they, and we were talking about the bylaws and I had been to college and I knew all about bylaws. And um, so I was working on the bylaws and, and then the bell rang, it was time to go into the meeting and everybody got up and they said, hey, Bobby, it's time to go. And I said, can't go. You know, not a shareholder. You know, that's not something I can do. This is where we part. 
Well, years later, I'm running a native corporation for another village up on the Koyukuk River. And um, when I flew into this village, I would always go have tea with, uh, with an elder there. Um, I think she was the only one who was up when the plane arrived. And I would go have tea with her, and one day she says to me, well, it would be better if we had an Athabascan person from one of our villages running our corporation. And I said, oh. And she said, yes, but a Coghill from Ninano or an Eskimo, that's almost as good. But at least, at least you're not a white man. <laughs> Thank you very much. Our next speaker tonight is Liz Eilers. She moved to Juneau seven years ago and found it to be paradise. In her spare time, she loves to take corgis on walks, try new recipes in the kitchen, and decoupage. She is excited to be on the Mudroom stage for the second time in 2017 and grateful for the amazing community here. Please welcome Elizabeth. Thank you. I am a self-professed small-town girl, lover of cold climates, so Juno is paradise for me. Long days give to many decoupaging crafts. I've always been a square peg trying to fit into a round hole. I was at the height of my anxiousness and awkwardness my freshman year of college. Most teenagers, when given the opportunity to live separately from their parents for the first time, experiment with drugs and alcohol. This was not the case for me. I was a much more morally convicted person at the time, much more innocent. Because of this innocence, uh, my sense of humor was very immature, and one of my most prized possessions was a department store mannequin hand that had been a gift, a high school graduation gift, from a friend, a fellow thespian, uh, as part of an inside joke from a play that we'd been in. Naturally, I named her Tammy, Mannequin Han, Tammy for short, and I will refer to her as Tammy for the duration of the story. The Mannequin Hand is Tammy. So, I take Tammy to my freshman year of college, she moves into my 15th story dorm room with me at Western Illinois University, home of the fighting Leathernecks. I quickly discovered that I was now, instead of a big fish in a small pond, a little fish in a big pond. Thompson Hall Dormitory is the equivalent of a skyscraper in Macomb, Illinois. It's 17 stories long, or tall, excuse me, albeit it's a skyscraper filled with teenagers. So it wasn't easy for me to make friends, uh, part of it being that I wasn't interested in drugs and alcohol, and part of it just being because I'm a late bloomer but an old soul. For example, I had a velvet Elvis hanging in my dorm room. <laughs> weird. It's weird. So. Tammy comes with me to my freshman year of college, and what I discover is using Tammy as an icebreaker is a great way to make friends, especially if you incorporate her as part of 
any practical joke or prank. That being said, one of our most favorite pranks to incorporate her into that kind of evolved as time went along was tying her to a rope. We would secure a note onto Tammy, which asked, need a hand? Question mark. <laughs> or just here to lend a hand? Exclamation point. And from my 15th story dorm room, I would lower Tammy down to the 15 stories of potential victims. <laughs> so, this kind of became a nightly routine or ritual with me, and Tammy's fan base grew, as I'm sure you can imagine. And it was a night just like any other night, and we're lowering Tammy down. Girls are packed into my dorm room like sardines. Lower and lower she's going down with a note that asks if anyone needs a hand. When all of a sudden, I assume it's one of Tammy's many fans stopping by to check in on the antics. Maybe they just want to be a part of it. Miss, what are you throwing out the window? <sighs> Campus police. I had lowered Tammy pretty far down at this point, so I'm simultaneously trying to reel her back in to my dorm room, also while being respectful to the officer. Officer, we are not throwing anything out of the window. As you can see, this mannequin hand is securely fastened to the rope. There's no danger of this mannequin hand falling to the ground whatsoever. He was not impressed. Unfortunately, I had to hand Tammy over, and the officer confiscated Tammy. Things had gotten out of hand. <laughs> Myself and the four other girls in my dorm room at the time earned ourselves a judicial review in front of the Thompson Hall Housing Authority. That fateful morning came when we found ourselves in front of the judge. I don't think she had briefed herself on this case at all. She opens up the file, takes a look at it. Some confusion falls upon her face. Well, uh, usually these situations involve drugs or alcohol. So I'm just going to say don't do it again. Thank you. No, this, that would never happen again. This will never happen again. I will never be so reckless with Tammy in the future. Of course, I expect her to hand Tammy back to me. So, uh, ma'am, can I have my mannequin hand back, please? Oh, sure. Thankfully, they had kept Tammy safe. Tammy and I were reunited. Uh, since that instance, I've never let Tammy get too far from reach. Thankfully, I do still have Tammy today. So the good news is, is you can spend a lifetime being a square peg trying to fit into a round hole. But if you're lucky, you just might get a helping hand.
All right, our next speaker is Bev Levine. One word to describe Bev would be nerd. She does calculus in her free time. She enjoys participating in discussions about whether Snape is a hero or not. She can often be found listening to podcasts about all sorts of nerdy things, including one where three brothers and their dad played Dungeons and Dragons. Being such a nerd can make it hard to fit in. Please help me welcome Bev. So I had a story planned for this that I was preparing, but then I, this weekend happened and I have completely changed my story. Um, so the first thing though is what is being a nerd? And John Green, one of the person I think is an amazing guy, describes it like this. Nerds like us are allowed to be unironically enthusiastic about stuff. Nerds are allowed to love stuff. Like jump up and down in your chair, can't control yourself, love it. People who call people nerds are basically saying, you love stuff. And yeah, I love stuff. I love math, I love Harry Potter, and I also love podcasts. And finding people in your everyday life who also wanna jump up and down in, in their chair super excited about these things doesn't always happen. But this weekend, I was in Seattle for something called PodCon. It was a con convention of podcasters and fans of podcasts. And so I was there with 3,000 other people who love podcasts. And that felt really special. So I flew into Seattle after having been on vacation for a little while, landed in Seattle, and that Friday night I had signed up on this Facebook group to join 21 other people for dinner. 21 people I had no idea who they were. And I was a little nervous, kind of not sure if I was gonna have anything to talk about with these people. I didn't know them, didn't know where they were from, didn't even know what they looked like really, except for the little bit of Facebook stalking I'd done. And when I get there, I sit down at this table and I introduce myself, I say my name, and people are like, oh, so what's your favorite podcast? And why did you come here? And I'm like, Dear Hank and John is a great one. I also love The Adventure Zone, 99% Invisible. And they also had their podcast that they loved. And we could sit there and we had a two, three hour dinner talking about podcasts. And some of these people were creators and they had met people that they were sharing their podcast with. I left with three different people's business cards of their podcasts that I'm now trying to start catching up on. And then Saturday, opening ceremony, at this convention with 3,000 people in this room. These, these guys come up, introduce themselves as the founders of PodCon. And we get other speakers coming up, sharing their stories. And it was a magical feeling being in this room with people who are so unironically enthusiastic about this. I was also a volunteer at this podcast, at this PodCon, and I was working registration Saturday, and these people are coming in, and they're excited and I get to be the one to hand them that badge, that ticket in to that building where they're going to go and have a blast loving podcasts. And I, it, sometimes it wasn't quite that busy and so I pull out my cross stitching like I do and I'm, it's, a, it's a res an electrical resistor chart that says ohm sweet ohm. 
yeah, I am a nerd. <laughs> and this person sitting next to me at the registration booth, she was like, you know how to cross-stitch? And I was like, yeah. She's like, she's actually from Anchorage. The only two Alaskans there happened to be sitting next to each other. And she was like, uh, our show Perseverance, this person's doing a cross-stitch, but it got all screwed up. Can you help me? And I was like, you brought it with you? And she was like, yeah. And my boyfriend also thought I was crazy to do that. But this would be the place where I'd find someone who'd be willing to help me do it. And so that night, I helped her fix her cross-stitch. Sunday, I started my morning working at uh, one of our the stations is handing out swag bags for people who would help donate to the con to start this convention and start the um, help fund it in the beginning to see if there was enough interest. And these people are coming up and they're getting their patches, their bags, and they're just excited to be there and we're excited to have conversations with each other. The line was pretty long, but no one in that line was bored because the person in front of them and the person behind them had something in common. They loved podcasts. And we learned so much more about each other. I went to one of the podcasts called Holy Fucking Science. It's where four friends talk about science and they try to get each other to say, holy fucking science. <laughs> and it was about climate change. And one of the panelists on there does a whole podcast called Terrestrial, which I had only learned about two months ago when I signed up to come to this podcast, this podcon. And she talks about climate change and our effect on our ecosystem and how screwed we are if we don't do something. And I spend most of my days standing in front of a glacier talking about the same stuff. And so after the podcast, her, this, the podcast day, I went up to her and I got the opportunity to talk to her. And we had this thing in common. And we just were able there to encourage each other that what we're doing is worth something. And then I head to the podcast I was most excited to go to, which was Dear Hank and John. And it was a room of not quite 3,000 because there was a couple other panels going on. was the main stage, a huge number of us. Listening to two guys, two brothers, give advice, dubious advice at that. One of them about what to do about your one-legged duck named Puddles who got stolen by your neighbor and got named Eileen and then died. <laughs> like, you don't get that excited having that conversation with just anyone, but sitting in there, in that room, I got to laugh and enjoy that, that show. And then it was closing ceremonies. And they had some really great people come up and we had talked about what it means to be enthusiastic about stuff because without 3,000 other enthusiastic nerds and then a couple thousand at home who were also listening to during the remote con podcasts, there wouldn't have been a podcon. There wouldn't have been this place where we could all be nerds, unironically enthusiastic about podcasts. And the four guys who had founded it came up at the end. They didn't have anything really planned, they said, and they were just talking, bantering back and forth. The main lights come on. We're supposed to be done by 7.15. It's now 7.20. It's now closer, getting closer to 7.30. And they kept going. None of us wanted it to end. Because this was a place where we all felt like we belonged. And as I walked out, I checked my phone and I had an email from Alaska Airlines saying, you got to check into your flight. And it, to me, was a sad moment because I know I was leaving this place. This place where I had 3,000 friends who all liked the same thing, and it was a magical feeling.
Our last story before intermission is James Brooks. It's a story by James Brooks. James is the State House reporter for the Juno Empire. That means it's his job to figure out what's going on with the Alaska legislature. <laughs> Condolences. If he ever figures it out, he'll let you know. In his spare time, he explores fascinating stories from Alaska's recent history, stories that can say as much about where we are today as what happened back then. James Brooks. It was the middle of the night and the sun shone brightly. Little Diomede Island on the Bering Strait isn't far from the Arctic Circle, and so in high summer, it never really gets dark there. That's as true today as it was in June 1953, where our story starts. In that year, just as today, Little Diomede wasn't inhabited by many people. In fact, the only white people there were the teachers in the town school and a man named Jim Brooks who later came to Juneau and worked for the National Marine Fisheries Service. In 1953, he was just a graduate student studying sea life out there. And as the summer solstice approached, life started coming back to Little Diomede. It wasn't just sea life, it was also the life of people too. As the summer solstice came, so did the first tourists of the year motoring between icebergs and through the fog on small boats to Little Diomede. There was a party to celebrate the arrival of the first tourists and everyone went to bed. Then, in the middle of the night, there came a knock on the door. Someone was knocking on the schoolhouse where Jim Brooks was staying, telling him to come out and come and see what was happening on the beach. One of the tourists, in the middle of the night, had opened his backpack and with a thunderous clap, inflated the life raft. He got into the life raft and started paddling. Paddling west to Big Diomede, which in 1953 was the domain of the Soviet Union. Everyone stood on the beach and watched the paddler go. In the middle of the night, it was still bright, but there was fog coming in. And as the fog settled in, the paddler kept going and going and going, and then he disappeared into the fog. For the people on Little Diomede, and indeed for everyone in North America, that man had effectively disappeared for the next 50 years. No one in the United States knew what happened to that man. And now, let's come back here. I'm James Brooks, as I said before, and the folks here at Mudrooms were nice enough to let me tell this story. They also said that in order to tell this, I had to tie it back to me. So you have to listen to a little bit about me before we return to the story. I grew up in a military family, a Navy family, and so for every three or four years, we'd move from place to place. And it's always about finding your niche when you get into that new place, a new school, a new job, whatever it is. And for some people, it's hard. Sometimes for me, it's hard too, I, but I was lucky. I managed to find groups, people to connect with, places to connect with, places like here. But it's not always easy for people. In fact, it's downright hard or impossible for some people. And that's why I think it's amazing when people do connect. And I find it amazing the stories, the lengths that people will go to to find that connection. 
And so that's part of the reason why stories of defection, of people not only abandoning their families, not only abandoning their neighborhoods, but abandoning their countries to find that connection, to search for that connection, are so fascinating to me. And while paging through history stories and things like that, I started asking myself, we hear a lot about people who came from the Soviet Union, who come from other countries to the United States searching for that connection, searching for a better life. They think they don't fit in in their country and so they come here. But what about the other way? How many times has that happened? It has happened. And Alaska is darn close to another continent, another country. We don't think about it very often because it's a water border, but Little Diomede Island is three miles from Russia. It's three miles from Big Diomede. It's three miles from Asia. And so how many times have people defected, left, the, left Alaska, left the United States, and gone to Russia by that way? As far as I can tell, while the Soviet Union existed, there was one, one person who stayed. There have been people who have crossed the border, but they, were always, they always came back. And that one instance in June 1953 was the one time that somebody went and stayed. And so I asked myself, why? And so for the past few years, I've been looking. I've been digging into records from the FBI, from the CIA, from the former KGB to find out what happened to this man and why he went. Why was he so desperate to fit in, to find something new that he didn't think he could find in the United States? that he was willing to risk everything, to paddle across the Bering Strait for three cold miles to the Soviet Union at a time when Stalin still ran the Soviet Union. Cecil Stoner was born in 1908 in Christian County, Missouri. He grew up in an old, poor family. His father was a blacksmith, his mother was a homemaker. His family was, were the original Okies. They moved from place to place. In the Great Depression, they moved from Christian County to Oklahoma to Texas, and then on to California. Cecil Stoner didn't fit in by all accounts. He got odd jobs. He learned to weld. In World War II, he became a welder and apparently made a little money. And he still couldn't fit in. And so he joined the Communist Party of the United States, thinking that he would fit in. The war ended, and the Cold War began. But Cecil Stoner thought he had found his niche. And then came the Red Scare, people informing on each other, saying, you can't trust these communists. And Cecil Stoner was blacklisted. He couldn't find a job anymore in Seattle. So he turned to crime. He stole from his employer and was thrown in jail. He got out of jail, went to Nome, got on this tourist trip, paddled across, and then seemingly disappeared. According to the records that I found, he was thrown in prison because the Soviets didn't like what we would call defectors, border crossers, even if they thought they were coming to the promised land. Once he got out of jail, he settled. He found a family at a collective farm. They found him a job. They found him a place. And he seemed to be happy there. The records I found seemed to think that he had kids. But at some point, he decided he was ready to come back to the United States. He never made it, unfortunately. He died in a prison in Lithuania trying to come back to the United States in the 1960s. And the moral of this story is that when you find your place, treasure it. Because 
For some people, they never find it. And so for you, you may not have had to cross a border to find your special place, your special people, but that doesn't mean they're any less special. Only time I've been to London, I got asked about Sarah Palin. It happened to me in Guatemala and one time in Las Vegas. It's been so long since she was governor, I can't remember the names of a quarter of her children. But I still expect to get asked again about Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin, Sarah Palin, it's been so long since you spent two and a half years sometimes in this town. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded December 12, 2017 at Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Square Peg in a Round Hole. We had music by Andy Miller. Mudrooms events happen monthly on the second Tuesday of each month. The next event is scheduled for Tuesday, January 9th, 2018. The theme is Fork in the Road and we'll have music by the Summit String Quartet. The lineup is full for January, but we are looking for both storytellers and musicians for the rest of Season 7. In February, the theme is Close Quarters. In March, it's Wet and Wild. April's theme is White Lies, and we round out Season 7 in May with the theme Road Trip. To see the schedule of upcoming events or to sign up to tell a story, visit our website at mudrooms.org. Our next storyteller is Rebecca, air quotes, Bell's Service. Rebecca is passionately involved in many charities around Juneau. This Friday, she'll be performing at the Nickelodeon Theater in the show, You Snow Me Yours, I'll Snow You Mine. You'll hear her before you see her, and after you meet her, you'll never forget her. Please help me welcome to the stage, Rebecca Bell's Service. Praises to my mother, for my birth must have been agony because I was born with corners, an odd shape to an odd family. I never really fit in as a kid. I would laugh unexpectedly and make jokes about things that people didn't understand. I had my own unique fashion sense. I, wa- I was once suspended for wearing too many tutus. Three. Three is too many tutus. Uh, I fought in my church to be allowed to participate with Boy Scouts. Uh, I I was allowed to, and even though I excelled in many courses specializing in medical and camping, uh, I was never allowed a single merit badge because I wasn't 
officially a Boy Scout. I assumed the things kids would say and do to me were to try to put me in my proper shape, but all it did was make me stranger and harder to relate to. One particular bad day, a group of girls held me in a bathroom stall and for an hour uh, and told me in a, an immense detail of how I didn't fit and how I never would and that I should go die, or more pointedly, that I should go home and kill myself. So I went home that night in tears, and I told my father of the trials and the hoops I had to jump through that day and how I just didn't think I was going to be able to do it again. And this is what he said to me. You are a square peg. You're never going to fit in a circle hole. And the more you try, the more you're going to hurt yourself. And you'll never really fit in. I will support you in whoever you want to be. But you have to be strong enough to be that person. You can't come home and cry every day because you don't fit. Because once you start being yourself, you're going to know pleasures that those circle pegs are never going to understand. After that day, I went my own weird way. <laughs> uh, I discovered the joys of puns, even though some people don't appreciate them and others say men who make puns should be hung. Uh, no, hanging's too good for men who make puns. They should be drawn and quoted. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, you, that weird fashion sense I had? Well, I became a model at 16. Uh, I did runway modeling, hair modeling, jewelry mod modeling. Uh, I would get constantly getting picked out to get brought stage at concerts and just given cool stuff because it turns out when you're weird, people can pick you out of a crowd real easily. <laughs> I've, been on, I've been on Willie Nelson's bus and I've also had a 20 person only James's Addiction concert that I was pulled backstage to go to. Uh, and that Boy Scout training, well that really helped me out one day. I had uh, I'd moved from rural Georgia into Atlanta, and I found the cheapest apartment I could find, 550 for a two-bedroom. But uh, later, the police would tell me that this was also the most dangerous neighborhood in Atlanta, which then I found out because uh, I was asleep on my couch one night, and my door slammed open. In rural Georgia, we just never locked our doors. So at first, I thought just one of my roommates had come home. And as I woke up and looked across from me, there was a man wearing what used to be a white shirt. Now it was completely red. He had been stabbed seven times. One of the times was through the lung, and one stab was from his hand down to his forearm. And he was saying, I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead yet. I grabbed my roommate, and with my first aid training that I got at Boy Scouts, that was never good enough for a merit badge, we are able <laughs> to save his life. Uh, the, though we didn't know at first, because the, uh, we weren't allowed to know what happened or what hospital he went to, he found us, and he gave us a fern. And even though the fern did die, he survived. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, and, uh, but you know what? I'm really sorry, Dad, because I'm not a square. I don't think most people fit into two categories because I have curves and I have corners. I have fit into so many different places and I think we're all unique puzzle pieces. I have saved seven people's lives randomly traveling across this country. And 
I have I lived in a five-story Victorian mansion. The Janis Joplin's first concerts were in the ballroom of this house. It had a tower that had a 360 view of the entire Bay Area, right? I stayed in a skyscraper apartment in Seattle that had a, it was a corner apartment that overlooked the Bay. And I've also slept in cars and I've been homeless. I was a fan dancer in a circus. I'm still a professional fan dancer. I, <laughs> I was the coolest ice, ice cream scooper you've ever met. <laughs> uh, and I've also been disabled. Uh, and even though I've traveled a lot of places, the place I felt most like I've fit is here in Juneau. No, there isn't a ton of gnomes running around the streets, <laughs> and people aren't skateboarding in wedding dresses all the time, but uh, people don't tell me to stop, and they'd always encourage me. And, it, I've told, and I've had a lot of other people tell me that I encouraged them, and so that's one of the best things about this town is that they support each other no matter what shape you come in. Uh, and a pro tip for anyone who has been, feels like they're a round peg looking to like fill in a corner, if you do something weird every day, it becomes normal. Thank you. <laughs> Our next storyteller is Britt Anderson. Britt is a nomad who recently made his home in Juneau after stints in Orange County, San Diego, Utah, Nova Scotia, Virginia, New York, and Denver. Britt is short for Britain, and just like the country, he's pretty great. Britt. <laughs> Good evening. In 2011, I got to fulfill one of my personal lifelong dreams and take a study abroad trip to Berlin, Germany. At the time, I was a student at Brigham Young University, and uh, I went on my own. I wasn't part of a larger group of students. Um, so I ended up in a German class uh, where I was the only American. And uh, there was only one other native English speaker as well. So this other native English speaker and I, after class, decided to, to hang out since we were both in a new place. Um, his name was Josh. He was from the UK. And the first thing that came up was he just mentioned, by the way, I'm gay. And to my surprise, I casually mentioned, hey, me too. <laughs> and I wasn't surprised because it wasn't because I didn't know I was gay. I had known this for a long time. In fact, a few years before that, I had come out uh, to my family and a few close friends. Um, I had grown up Mormon, um, so this was obviously a very kind of traumatic experience for my family. Um, they were scared. I was scared. I was right around the time of Prop 8. Um, I was at a Mormon university uh, that had certain expectations about uh, these kind of things. And so it was, uh, I spent the next 
several years really trying to reconcile uh, my faith and my sexuality. And uh, so this is why it was definitely a surprise that uh, I randomly decided to come out to a stranger. But at the time, I figured I had nothing to lose. I was halfway across the world in a very progressive city that had a history of tearing down walls. Um, and uh, the more I got to uh, be comfortable there in Berlin and spend time there, um, I developed more friends. And uh, I, was, I decided to be open with all of these friends. And it was the first time that I had uh, been myself, been truly myself among other people, and these people embraced me, and they loved me. I mean, they were curious about uh, my faith, but they also supported me just no matter what. And as great as this was to um, embrace myself, it was also terrifying. Um, I was halfway across the world, and now it's, it's fine to be yourself around people you don't know, but I eventually would have to go back to Utah and back to this conservative university and back to my faith community and my family. And I didn't know how to put all that back into the box and where my life was gonna go from here. And so I kind of ran into this really heavy paralysis for you know days, even though I was in this beautiful city um, and living one of my dreams, I would wake up in the morning and just not be able to get out of bed. And I was just so afraid of this crossroads that I felt like I was approaching. So in order to snap myself out of this, I decided to take a little weekend trip um, to Hamburg, which was just a couple hours away by train. And a friend had recommended that the easiest way to see the city, which is this bustling port city, um, was to take a little water taxi. It was just a couple euros, and you could see the whole city. So I went, and I found myself in this pretty epic setting, you know, surrounded by historic architecture, out on the water, you know, container ships and tugboats and... Um, the wind blowing in my hair. And uh, it was in this epic setting that I really just had everything hit me. All of the times growing up when I had to hide who I was, when I had to blend in, when I had to you know, come up with stories about who I was and not truly be myself. Um, and this decision just came right at me where I had to choose between this community that I had been raised in that loved me and that wanted the best for me, but I wasn't sure if it was 100% the truth, and they, had, they required me to, to hide my truth in order to participate. And on the other hand, I could strike out on my own without knowing who was gonna be there to support me, where I was, where my life was gonna go from there. Um, but I could truly embrace myself. And all of this heavy weight came, 
and it was a truly terrifying moment for me. My heart was pounding, and all of a sudden, out there on the water, I felt this moment of stillness, and this one simple thought came to mind. It was, Brit, you can trust yourself. Thank you. Our last storyteller of the evening signed up yesterday. We had someone who couldn't make it, and so we thank you, Don Gottschall, for um, being here tonight. Don Gottschall is basically a civil engineer with a hydropower and construction management background. Since retirement, he has led volunteer construction teams to Unalaska, Mexico, Guatemala, Texas, and Mississippi. He has built, maintained, or tinkered with everything you see at Methodist Camp or here at Northern Light Church. <laughs> Please help me welcome Don. Thank you, Alita. And uh, Alita, there's a lot of people make a living fitting square pigs in their pegs in their round home. Log cabin builders typically drill a hole and put a peg in it to keep the top two logs from sliding around. Now, if he drills a one-inch hole, it has an area of pi r squared, which is, you know, pi times one-half squared is pi over four, and that's 0.785. <laughs> and all of you know that if you're above the fifth grade. And if you take a seven-eighth-inch square peg and... Uh, it, the area of a seven-eighths is seven-eighths times seven-eighths is 49 You may not have figured that out without your cell phone. But you take 0.766 over 0.785 and it's 0.975. That means if you put this square peg in that round hole, it's going to fill it up 97.5%. So you want to remember that Um, I've had times in my life where I felt like a square peg and heaven always fit in. And one of the clues to the rest of the stories I'm going to tell you is that alcohol is not a lubricant for putting square pegs in round holes. <laughs> one time at an office party, we'd taken two boats down to Takuina and come back, and, and there were quite a few leftovers And we, when we docked up. Uh, we decided we should probably clean the leftovers. And one of the ladies who had more fun than some of the rest of us had uh, decided she was going to go home. And it took about four people to lift this inebriated lady out of the boat and onto the dock. And it was sort of a consensus that she needed some help. And since I was the most sober one, I was the good Samaritan that was selected to help her down the dock. Well, it, that doesn't sound like it should be too bad, but she was having a little trouble staying vertical. And so she put her arm around me and around my waist and then another around my neck. And then I had to grab around her to keep, because when we were wondering if she turned loose, she'd fall clear off 
and that 10 foot wide dock just wasn't wide enough <laughs> for the sine wave that we were traveling as we went down <laughs> the center line. And to steer her and keep her upright, I had to take the other hand and sort of find a lever to hang on to to, to turn. We were doing fairly well. We weren't necessarily going in a straight line as the most direct route. And we're staggering down the, I say we because she had help. We're staggering down the dock and my parents had flown up from Colorado that day and my brother was on my boat explaining to my dad how big salmon fishing reels were compared to Colorado trout reels. And I had to pass that boat to get to the ramp to get up. As I got closer to the boat, and it had been a conversation that these two people didn't know how to get down the dock without running over one side or the other, as I got close, my dad recognized his son who was entangled with this drunk lady, and uh, there wasn't much to do but say, hi, Dad. <laughs> I definitely didn't fit into what my dad's image was of me, and there was definitely a square pig. I did regrab the, my, my my charge and got her down the dock and up the ramp and it turned out okay. Well, after some of those experiences and a few others, you get as old as I am and you accumulate a bunch of knowledge and uh, you like to use it. And one of those pieces of knowledge was when a petite lady comes to your house for dinner, don't let her drink one of your whole 16-ounce bottles of home brew before supper. <laughs> I had one get sick and one went to sleep on the couch before my wife could get dinner on the table. We decided that from there on, you know, we're going to serve small glasses and maybe we do tastings instead of, <laughs> instead of testings. Um, at a party in Madison, Wisconsin, where our son and daughter-in-law live, we were there one night and the host was cooking supper and they had, had some premium handcrafted beers there. And one of the petite ladies said, she'd like to taste one. So I said, would you like a small glass? And she says, no, I want a big glass. And I tried to explain why a small glass might be better. And uh, she proceeded to get a 12 ounce glass, fill it clear up with a high octane beer. And left. The next lady that came up was my daughter-in-law's uh, nurse from Chicago, and she was not petite. And she says, do I have to have a small glass? And I said, no, you're a full-grown lady. You can have any size glass you want. <laughs> and then I explained that a little bit, and I, I knew she had trapped me right about that time. Well, the, the petite lady did get to the dinner table holding her glass in both hands and didn't find the right side of the chair to sit down on. So I felt good about that. When we got home, my daughter-in-law, oh, who by the way has a uh, black belt in Taekwondo 
and a verbal one also. <laughs> Explain to me that you do not talk about ladies shape and size. And, uh, and, and it was fairly clear by the time she got through with the lecture what she was talking about. Um, and so I decided that just because you've accumulated a bunch of knowledge and you're a two inch square peg and you feel proud about it, that you uh, probably better get a hatchet, cut that thing down to seven eighths inch on one side, rotate it 90 <laughs> degrees, hit it again, and since you know you're gonna be about to be pounded into a small round hole, you better sharpen the point, and because you're gonna get beat into there till it's flat. <laughs> and that's what happened. <laughs> so the only satisfaction is you can walk away and say, well, at least I filled up 97.5% of the hole. I'd show and foul Romeo the Wolf and Justin Parrish's beard. I tried to leave, but this all brought me back, and at least for now I'm still here. A trip to Tanakee with a gram of legal weed. And a case of Rainier. I tried to leave. You're listening to Mudrooms on KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live on December 12, 2017 at Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Square Peg in a Round Hole. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit our website at mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from the rest of the Mudroom Storyboard, Melissa Griffiths, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Steve Sewing, and Sarah Hannon. Music by Andy Miller. I'm Alita Bus. Have a great night. Waves at Eagle Beach, Mark Wheeler's ice cream. And about two weeks each year, I tried to leave. But this all brought me back just like Justin. Parish's beer, like Justin Parish's.